This is the What Car Podcast, covering the latest automotive electrification news, recorded Tuesday, February 16th, 2021, Episode 2, The One Hour Box. Hey, we're back for the second What Car podcast. I'm Philip Royal. I'm one of the contributors to thewhatcar.com. I also write for Sports Car Magazine and Racer.com and a bunch of other stuff in my past that I no longer do. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Ed Sanchez. My day job is a senior analyst uh, for the global automotive practice at Strategy Analytics. We do uh, business intelligence and research. Prior to that, I was uh, news editor uh, for Motor Trend and senior editor for Truck Trend, as well as many other uh, less uh, illustrious and significant roles. And what we do now is geek out on electrification. We've been getting pigeonholed into EVs because I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of EV content <laughs> coming up in the next few years where everybody's going EV. When we created this site back in uh, December 2019, the idea was hybrids, plugins, we'd cover fuel cells, we cover everything that was basically not strictly internal combustion engines, uh, some form of electrification. And just recently, it's unless it's Toyota, everybody's going <laughs> to... Everybody's going to full electrify, but we can get into that later. Circling back around to a year ago when we started this site, we haven't really done a redesign of the website. And, you know, once a year, you might as well throw everything away and start brand new with a website. So that was what I did last night up until about one in the morning was plugging away and I didn't like what I did. So I got up again this morning and plugged away some more and I've made some edits. And if you go to the whatcar.com, basically our website now looks like a cell phone interface. Uh, there's less on the screen. So my motto for a lot of life is do less. So I've taken that as far as I can with the website, bigger pictures, just straight to the content and easier to see with my aging eyes. <laughs> more user-friendly. That's how I'd put it. More user-friendly. And we've been getting some more users and that's been awesome. In uh, a week or so ago, I did a story on racer.com, and then we picked that uh, a version thereof up on the what car, uh, more picking at the electrification aspect of a new track that's being built in Southern California, Buttonwillow, and they're they're going to put in supposedly 16 superchargers because they've been getting run groups of upwards of 50 Teslas in a run group uh, for track days at the track. And so they're building a new track, and they're going to help accommodate those people because right now you got to drive about 12 miles south to get to some superchargers or another five miles south for more, and then 40 some miles north. And I, I've been out there for some of the track days and I've talked to some of those guys and they can just about make it. If you're, uh, you do the track, you do your session, you come back into the paddock, book it down, charge up, come back to the track, <laughs> make your next session. And it's it's been tight, but they've been doing it. And it's nice to On see- On level two chargers or? Uh, I don't know what it's, it's the supercharger that's at the button willow exit at I 57, whatever that is. 
and I don't know what level. I am not as well versed at all of the superchargers oh. as I should be. Gotcha. So I don't know. Apparently, but they're gonna, of, the new ones are going to be trackside. Is what you're yes, saying? Yes, it's going to be 16 nice. in the paddock, which means you're going to have to be in the facility. I was kind of unsure about that. I did not get that information. Ironically, a Tesla forum in Canada picked up our story, and they actually managed to get a map from the track as to where where the superchargers would be, where the individual units would be. And it seemed to be that they, they'll they be in the paddock kind of dead center in track two that they are constructing right now. So I don't think they're gonna get that many drive-by customers, which means if you're doing track day stuff, it's kind of exclusive to the track day people, which- yeah, That'll be nice. I don't know how Tesla works with that, whether they want them to be roped off or they don't care or what, I don't know. I assume- my, my understanding is if you reach out to them and you give them a passionate enough plea to install them, that they'll do it if they, they see a compelling enough use case. So, and I'm assuming that Button Willow is having to pay. I haven't I haven't asked that question yet. But uh, I, mean, I don't know. It's um, it's probably kind of half and half. Um, I mean, Musk has said he doesn't intend the supercharger network to become necessarily a profit center, although unlike the early days they are charging now unless you got some kind of secret handshake deal they they do charge a little bit i think the going rates around uh, 15 cents per kilowatt hour for superchargers <laughs> it's cheaper um, than race gas yes it is so i'm sure uh the the tesla clubs club racers or whatever will be happy about this yeah what concerns me is that it's only Tesla stuff. And up until recently, as we'll we'll get into in a little bit, there's been a lot of compliance cars from uh, what we call legacy manufacturers, but that's changing. And we saw that last week with the Audi e-tron GT. That's every bit a Model S plaid that you could imagine. And yep. people are gonna start taking that to the track and what, they can't charge? So I'm a little concerned about that, but my guess is um, the other, probably like Electrify America or EVgo or somebody will be right right behind uh, Tesla with the superchargers. Well, I'm going to be putting in a uh, a bug in their ear, a button willow, because I go up there fairly fairly often. I'll be heading up again this weekend uh, and see if they can get other chargers that are not specifically for Teslas as well, because that would be nice. And also, then Tesla owners, I believe, could use the non-Tesla chargers. Because if they're getting 60 car run groups, 16 chargers is not enough. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, again, I'm, I know I, I listened to the last podcast and I kind of went down several rabbit holes. So I'll try to keep this brief, but that does get into the issue of plug compatibility. The yeah, Tesla I, plug is proprietary versus. But there the are adapters. CCS combo. Yes. But I think honestly, the whole plug level two, three, four voltage wattage that's a whole other podcast yes so, well anyway <laughs> speaking of other evs you sent me a text about a new ev that you recently saw <clears throat> chugging down the road yes now uh the existence of this model is no secret it's been known for over a year and been shown at least in car shows for a while this is the first one i've seen on the road that didn't appear to be a press car. From all I could tell, it appeared to be a legitimate private consumer sale. So you're killing I, me. What car is it? I saw a Mustang Mach-E okay. on, on a California freeway. I believe the last 
Mach E we saw was at the LA Auto Show. That's the last one I saw. Yeah. And it was gorgeous. Yes. Very, very good looking. Um, on the road, I, it's no less striking on the road, I think. I mean, prior to the Mach E, what I considered, at least in my eyes, the, one of the best looking crossovers or SUVs, I thought was the Alpha. Alfa Romeo Stelvio. Um, I I think the Mach-E blows that out of the water from a styling standpoint, personally. I, I wow. think the Mach-E is a real stunner. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it at the auto show. I thought it was great. Uh, it's an SUV, but at this point in my life, SUVs are what I drive. So don't tell 20-year-old Phil that, but uh, eventually you'll be drooling over SUVs and and. <laughs> The Maki looked great and it looked affordable. And the only thing I don't like about it is it's a 400 volt architecture, which instantly means it's outdated in probably five years. But if you're leasing, who cares? Yeah, get the new one. Yeah. Uh, what I've been seeing around in my neighborhood a lot is Model Y. And I've only ever seen these in streets and, um, you know, driving around. I and they look early fine. on, you weren't a huge fan. I'm not a huge Tesla design fan. The nose still looks weird to me. But I tell you, parked in everybody's driveways these model y's they look nice they look yeah. very nice and they all have to reverse in to charge <laughs> and it made me realize why full self-driving is a big deal because no neighbor of mine before they owned a tesla knew how to reverse into their own driveway <laughs> and i'm waiting for one of them to just stuff the car through the garage door because they all now reverse in guilty i have to do the same with mine <laughs> Nobody in my neighborhood backs into their driveway except for people with Teslas. So It's true. I'm not going to deny it. Yeah. Kind of the opposite of a Tesla right now would be the Bolt. And Chevy just unveiled a new one after uh, when did the original Bolt come out? It's been out 2017 for... model. So okay. late 2016. So it's getting a little long in the tooth, but nothing, nothing much. I mean, you know, Tesla goes for 10 years before they do a uh, a major refresh and uh chevy here has pulled one out now this year it's it's still on the same architecture as far as i'm aware but they did introduce a euv version about six inches longer it's three inches more legroom in the back the wheelbase is somewhere in between there i forget what the actual number is it's, it's roughly three uh, inches yeah. is it so so it stretched out the the wheelbase a little bit uh, ironically it's the EUV, so they have the Bolt EV, the standard one, and the EUV, which is the SUV, looks a little uh, more like an SUV. And that one surprisingly has marginally less trunk room than the EV, but you get more leg room in the back seats. So you know they're, they're talking tenths of a cubic foot. So probably not, not as so much that most people would notice yeah so. it, you're roughly getting the same storage space but you're getting more back seat room uh, like i said the architecture is the same it's not built on the ultium battery platform uh, and so it's kind of aging a little bit and you well, know how's it how's it gonna hold up all the other specs look great on it though they dropped the price five grand it's now about thirty-two thousand for the ev thirty-four thousand for the euv uh, features Super Cruise, which I got a whole thing I can go off on that in in a minute. And at that kind of price, and if they bring back that $7,000 tax credit, uh, this is 
this and the leaf are kind of the cars to get 250 mile range level two charging yeah so um with with a plug that plugs into your dryer and free installation of a level two charger that can charge up to 11 kilowatt hours in your house that come with yeah. the purchase of the vehicle it, it seems like a winner to me if you if they bring back that tax credit you're talking a mid to upper twenty thousand dollar base price yeah so i you know i know you know i don't want to be uh, accused of being a gm apologist but um i think this is very smart on multiple levels for gm yes true it's not a new ultium platform vehicle whatever I honestly think this is probably what the Bolt should have been from the beginning. The original Bolt was envisioned uh, more specifically as like a ride-sharing, ride-hailing type vehicle for like Uber Lyft drivers. And even early on, they had supposedly some had some kind of sweetheart deal with Lyft to supposedly purchase a lot of these. I don't know if that ever really panned out. But when it was introduced, a lot of people just thought the styling was kind of awkward and it was just the proportions were kind of weird. Almost everyone that's driven it, I in full disclosure, I haven't driven a bolt, but most of the reviews I've read of people that drove it really liked it. They thought it was really responsive, fun to drive all that. But I, I think for some people, the packaging and the styling was a little bit of a turnoff. So I think by making it more crossover ish, I think it's going to appeal to a much wider audience. I think that's uh, definitely a wise move on GM's part. And getting on the other thing, um, and I think I wrote about this ironically just like one week before the uh, the Bolt announcement about um, how I think the the OEM should be more proactive, in including home charging with the purchase of the vehicle. And I guess GM kind of thought the same thing. It says, "Hey, well, let's just kind of." They're reading our blog. I guess evidently. <laughs> So they just package it into the deal. And also, too, I guess the new portable charger they're including with it accommodates and supports both uh, 120 and 240 volt with the same charger, whereas the mobile charger they originally shipped with the Bolt was strictly kind of 120 level one charging, which, you know, if you've had any experience with that, it's just excruciatingly slow. In some cases, you may not even need a, a hardwired home charger installation if you have you know 240 plug in your garage you know conceivably you could just use the uh the mobile charger they include with it and use that as your home charger that's that's kind of what i do with mine yeah it's a 65 kilowatt hour battery in the car and they're claiming mm -hmm. with the with that multi-plug adapter that can just plug right into a 220 or 240 volt that's sitting in your garage without spending the the 500 to a thousand dollars whatever it is that you have to spend to get an installation this you're just plugging straight in they're claiming seven hours to a full charge which means seven hours to 250 miles so, so basically range. overnight essentially overnight and it, it so i as we've covered before i'm a super commuter uh when it's not pandemic i'm driving 90 miles each way to work and i need a charger that's fast enough to charge a car in six to seven hours overnight if i'm doing a work one day and work the next day and this will do it and i i don't think there are that many people that are commuting as hard as i commute <laughs> where i'm doing 90 miles through la each way so 180 plus miles a day this car could do it and charge overnight without any additional hardware that i've got to install 
And to your point in your post the other day about installing level two chargers and how at your house and how you you kind of need that if you're going to make an EV a reality and not a headache as soon as you buy it. This flips that on its head and says you don't actually need that. This is the first yeah. solution that I've seen that's it's elegant. Here's the car. Here's the plug. Now you still got to have a house <laughs> and a 240 volt. Yeah, plug. this completely solve the problem, but get, it goes a long way toward kind of calming people's fears and 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 insecurities about charging. So uh, my hats off to GM for for kind of being ahead of the curve on this and um, recognizing the importance of home charging. Yeah, I thought the style was a win. I thought everything was a win. The interior's no Tesla, but I don't think Teslas are necessarily everything that people make Teslas out to be either as far as the interior goes. They have nice seats. They have a, a clean interior, but I, I'm not a big fan of the center screen. You need the the higher end stuff. You need the Model S and the Model X to get yeah. the screen in front of you so you're not dangerously looking off to the side to see what speed you're doing. Uh, things like that. This resolves that problem. You got a speedometer in front of you. You've got the gauges where they need to be. I, I think it's a win. It's a great commuter car, basically. Yeah, and for I the price, the you can't beat it. Gonna, I think the EUV is going to be a big hit for them, oh, for sure. Yeah, this is, I, I, I don't know what the Ultium platform is going to offer that they haven't done, and if that they haven't accomplished with this car. It seems, seems great. I'm turning into a Bolt fan. <laughs> So one of the, the companies that I am a big fan of, but I'll never own, is uh, never <laughs> say never, and, and that nobody owns right now is Lucid, and Lucid Motors. And yeah. this last week, CNBC took a tour of their facility in in Arizona, and interviewed the CEO Peter Rawlinson, and he had some interesting things to say. Basically. They've got phase one, phase two that they're they're gearing up for. They're hoping to have their air come out uh, later this year, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that's through phase one. So phase one of their production at their facility, they, they'll be able to produce about 34,000 cars a year, which is a car every 10 minutes, he said. Then they go to phase two, which I believe was doubling the facility size, which gets them to about 90,000 cars a year. Mm -hmm. And then he said they'll double again and go into size phase wise. three, size-wise, and go to phase three, which where they can produce 400,000 cars a year. And that sounds like a lot of ultra-luxury uh, Lucid Airs and Gravities, their SUV. However, it sounded to me uh, like it's a new platform coming. He even said that the the new plant will go on to produce platform two. And if you're Oops. making 400,000 cars, you're not producing $150,000, $400,000, dollars cars. Nobody's doing that. The yeah. only thing that makes sense is platform two is a model three or model Y competitor. Yeah, that and would be my guess. That was exciting because Lucid is awesome. They have a CEO that's not crazy. They have products that look. Although he did good. use to work for Tesla, <laughs> he did, and he knew to leave. And <laughs> he's created a car that looks pretty amazing. It from the wrong angles, it looks bad, at least the air. But I think it overall, it's it's a win. It's got the right charging speeds. It's got what I would hope to be good quality control, better than 
maybe what Tesla's been struggling with because basically Tesla was the guinea pig and everybody's learned from it. Yeah. And so they're going to come out with their air and um, the gravity, he said, will come out in 2023. And then at some point, I'd assume in 25, 26, I don't know, is when they're going to start. Platform two or whatever they call that. Platform two. So the question to me, though, is this all sounds fantastic. Around that time when Platform 2 comes out, say it's 2025, 26, what other EVs are going to be on the market? Like pretty much everything. It's, that's yeah, when everybody. everything's going to hit. So Tesla made a lot of inroads before anybody else. They, they basically made the inroads and they're forcing everybody <laughs> down that path of EV. Uh, Tesla's the one to blame for us going electric. So they've, they've got instant traction. Lucid, outside of our geeky little world of EV nerds, who knows of them? Who's going to yeah. go and buy one? They have no dealerships. They have no showrooms, I believe. Maybe they've got a – oh, no, they've opened a couple, I believe. They've got a couple, yeah. But they basically have no traction. And they're going to come out and try and produce 400,000 or say 300,000 because they're maybe combined of the air and the gravity, they'll produce 50,000 each of those, although I think that would be high. Who's going to buy one? Is it too little too late? Um, I think they have a, a chance. I mean, so here's the deal is there will be a ton of startups. There's going to be a ton of carnage. I hate to say it, but there will be. What stands out for me with Lucid is their management, uh, their funding, and the depth and sophistication of their engineering. Now, I want to I preface this by saying I'm not an engineer. However, I'll tell you what really impressed me uh, about Luce in particular is the compactness of their motor. If you look at like a Tesla drivetrain, you have your motor and then you have an, a reduction gear that kind of sticks out a little bit from the main motor. So it, it, it's actually a little bulkier in some ways. The Lucid, they managed to package that all together with like a planetary gear set. So it's all a very, very compact package that in some cases are getting, I think, 600 plus horsepower out of per, per motor. The, the, I think, I think Rollins said the, Rollinson said the, uh, the Dream Edition Air is going to be dual, dual or tri motor, I, I think possibly. Um, so that's going to have, you know, insane, you know, thousand plus. Uh, levels of power, but I just get the sense, unlike Nikola, and you know, I, I know every, you know, Nikola is kind of my favorite pinata to kind of beat up on, but it's um, everybody's favorite pinata. Yeah, it seems like Lucid is really, really serious about their their approach to engineering, and like we discussed in the last podcast, they did a lot of R and D on the racetrack before anybody really knew about them, so. I actually have pretty good confidence in terms of their engineering. Now, that doesn't necessarily ensure they're going to be a runaway success. I mean, there have been a lot of companies out there that had very impressive products from an engineering standpoint. And for whatever reason, they kind of flopped in the marketplace. Either they were too expensive or people just didn't like them or whatever. So I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to be huge, huge success or a flop. I, I think they have a pretty good chance. Um, I'll be excited to, uh, you know, get, you know, see their products firsthand, drive one if possible. 
I think they got a good chance, but you know, they, they have some pretty ambitious goals. So. Well, hopefully the LA auto show has been um, postponed until November. Hopefully they can actually have an air and maybe a gravity there, uh, which would be fantastic to be able to check these things out in person. Cause nobody's seen one <laughs> as far as well, I know. Except it, other than a few handfuls of, of, you know, invitation only. Kind yeah. Of. It, it, prototypes but yeah it's it we we don't truly know i made the comment about quality control and we're guessing yeah we're going by their word so yeah kind of the opposite of all of that clean engineering today's kind of opposite uh, yeah it, it out, it, so. it, it's <laughs> it, when we made the rundown i thought let's just jump back and forth go go from one extreme to the other and another extreme of lucid and it's uh, white glove manufacturing <laughs> in a brand new facility is uh, King of the Hammers just happened. Can't much, get much dirtier than that. No, and uh, a team showed up, Kyle Sigelin, I'm sure I'm butchering the name. He showed up and ran the Everyman Challenge with his team in a Toyota 4Runner, which was basically a gutted Nissan Leaf. And I couldn't quite grasp which parts were leaf and which weren't because he did the team did something very interesting they all of these off-road challenges or off-road races you have multiple segments so you'll have a short segment long segment whatever and then your pit crew will be able to jump from one stop to the next stop and refuel do repairs whatever it is so you're driving out for you know 20 30 miles looping back and come into a new finishing area. And then your crew really is only driven five miles and they're there with all of your fuel and everything. Well, so the first the first leg of all of this was about 17 and a half miles and they had a 20 kilowatt hour battery in the Forerunner. And they came in to do the pit stop and they put in a 62 kilowatt battery from a leaf. They They have a slider system. They slid out the old battery uh wade uh, i want to say it was 200 pounds is the system that they that they were using i don't know if that was a battery if that was a contraption to hold the battery but they had this sliding in system it was they slid out the 20 kilowatt hour battery they put in the 62 kilowatt hour battery and they were going in seven minutes impressive i don't think you could fuel a car in seven minutes i've run enduros now there's different ways that you can you can fuel a car and i run uh when i race i run i road race and we have five gallon jugs that we use they're not carb compliant or anything they're the off-road type jugs that you'd use if you were doing atvs or whatever i run um, a, a huge like half inch pipe off that you drill an extra breather hole into the thing and granted 17 miles of off-roading you're not doing you know 30 gallons but it that was comparable. They did a battery swap in what was what I would say was comparable to to actual this, racing. And it was and it showed the ingenuity. It was amazing that that they did this. Yeah. I I personally think this is probably the model for EVs in racing or off-road situations is you're gonna do you're gonna have like quick swap batteries because the physics of charging just doesn't and believe me, they're getting better by the day, but the physics of charging just simply doesn't allow for just massive amounts of power in a short period of time. So whether, you know, 
20 years from now, there's like eNASCAR or eNHRA or whatever. What I see happening is have pre-charged battery packs just be swapped out either for pit stops or, 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 you know, the next run or whatever. I mean, for more kind of endurance where there's like breaks or stages, you could do charging, but for kind of the quick turnaround kind of racing, I think it's going to be battery swaps. Yeah. And the other part that fascinated me was the, the ingenuity that went into this, the fact that somebody thought of this and did it. And then that led me down a whole road, like what we discussed last week, uh, AEM uh, that normally does standalone engine management systems for, for ICE vehicles. They have their, what they call the VCU, their, their vehicle control unit. And it's, if you take a Tesla, the, the guts out of a Tesla, uh, you can plug that into some kind of custom vehicle that you're making, some race car, and you use this VCU instead of a standalone engine management system, and it controls the whole thing. And they're actually getting, or at least they claim, they're getting more power out of that than what Tesla is getting out because they can they can push it more because it's a yeah. custom race application. Uh, then there's like what you were talking about last week, Zero Labs, there's uh, AVA Stingray that we talked about. Uh, the hot rodding community is seemingly going to come alive and you take it down a further road of one thing I don't like is cars calling home. I don't like necessarily Tesla knowing that I put the car in reverse instead of drive and, and drove into something. I don't, I don't particularly like that. Big brother, uh, yeah. yeah. The, the big brother watching you, uh, I, I kind of hit on it earlier with the bolt it comes with super cruise and super cruise will be a three you'll come it'll come with apparently three years of super cruise and after that it's a subscription service yeah your car is going to start shutting down after a certain period of time and i think bmw and mercedes maybe tried this uh, a couple years ago with some some um subscription services features for cars if they didn't do it they they hinted at trying to do it and then i think they backtracked because who wants to spend an extra five bucks a month or whatever, just to get hands-free driving or to get, uh, I think I, I'm going off the top of my head, watch me be totally wrong. I want to say it was BMW said heated seats, something like that. And I want to say it was actually Volkswagen or Audi. Was that, was that it, but it was somebody yeah. that was going to charge a monthly fee for this. And I don't, I don't see it. I don't get it. And what I do see is uh, crazy people like me saying there's no emissions anymore there's no carb there's no you're basically going to have your vehicle inspection will be back to the old days of do your headlights work do your indicators work yep. and so i could take an old car throw the guts in from a wrecked model three and build my own car with none of this stuff yeah. and make a raw car again and that made me excited I liked that. Yeah. So here's, here's my take on this. I, and I know, you know, I was sharing uh, my anecdotal story about kind of the, I don't want to say the B word boomers, but you know, that, that just kind of the, the kind of. Uh, We're millennials. Of, we can talk bad about yeah, the boomers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of a backward looking mentality about, about propulsion and internal combustion and all that. And just, you know, the pining for the good old days. I honestly believe once the enthusiast community truly experiences the power and the potential of EVs, I think they're going to embrace it like you won't believe. I think right now they're just kind of in the stage of being kind of uncertain about it. 
it's unfamiliar. It's kind of having to relearn a whole lot of different stuff from an engineering fabrication standpoint. But I think you're going to see potentially a lot of EV powertrain swaps and um, and customs and resto mods. I almost wonder if it's going to be a bigger <laughs> boon for that industry. Then I, I think it could be. Yeah. Um, soon, they'll yeah, go for it. they'll go they'll <laughs> go crazy because you yeah. simply won't have emissions to worry about. You won't have anything to worry about. You can bolt anything into anything. And as soon as you can take, like, if you if you disconnect your computer, as um, one of the YouTube videos was showing, a, a guy replaced the center console. He updated his center console in his Model 3, and it stopped working because the key card activator is in the center console. And it's not just a reader. it's It actually stores information. It's the old Volkswagen thing. You replace the gauge cluster and your car doesn't work. Uh, back in the early 2000s when they introduced yeah. that and all the enthusiasts replaced their gauge clusters and bricked their cars. Now you can brick your Tesla by removing the center console and simply updating it. And it's simply a service call from Tesla to come and, and do the handshake. Uh, but as soon as you can get around that, which the likes of AEM is doing, it's... The, the the world is your oyster and you don't have to worry about getting your timing wrong you don't have to worry about uh going to the dyno you simply plug yeah. it in and tell it this is the serial code on the motor yeah. uh this is the gear ratio that i'm running and boom you should be able to have speedometers that work everything works hypothetically plug and play now some of you may have seen this already uh rich benoit of rich rebuilds fame on youtube a uh, long time kind of Tesla tinker and hacker. He shared for a long time his frustrations with Tesla in terms of being unwilling to kind of help him kind of on the enthusiast hobbyist side. Basically, Tesla wants you to do everything exactly how they want you to do it. And if you deviate from that, they say, too bad, so sad. You're on your own. We're not going to help you. So kind of as a, you know, as a, a, a proverbial Big middle finger, middle finger to <laughs> he's going to stick uh, a GM LS V8 in a Model S. So he's in the process of doing that currently. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the Bubba's are like, yeah, I'll show those you know, Tesla and EVs and all that. They're getting all excited about it. But for me, and if you kind of listen to the backstory on it, this is more of a protest against kind of this, this closed ecosystem that, that Tesla has kind of, a lot of people kind of make uh, some parallels to Apple and kind of the, the walled garden kind of ecosystem. The, the, the point Rich is trying to make is like, why do you have to be so hard on hobbyists about this? Why do you have to like remotely disable so many features, basically shut us down? You know, just, you know, once the cars are out of warranty, just let us do stuff with them. You know, why do you have to be so controlling? So that's kind of why he's building this car. And I think it's going to be kind of cool from a novelty standpoint. I mean, the, the bigger picture and the bigger conversation is right to repair. So it's going to be interesting to see how some of these startup EV makers like Lucid, like others, where they're going to fall in that continuum. Now, in some cases, it may be legislated where they don't have a choice, that they're going to have to provide diagnostic codes, uh, service information, you know, all that stuff to independent repair shops and individuals. This is still very much kind of a work in process right now. It's just kind of state by state. 
I think it passed in Massachusetts. It's passing in some other states. Yeah, that's that's kind of the backstory on the the V8 Model S. But. What what I'm kind of curious about with all of this is going back to the subscription service is if you've got to subscribe for uh, what you do for the full self-driving, I believe is a subscription. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to subscribe for a variety of things. That's ultimately the way we're going with cars. At least that's the way it is right now. Well, that's the way the OEMs would like to go. But. Yes. So, and that's because they, they claim that it costs money to keep these things updated. And to, yeah. you know, they develop them. That's one thing, but you got to constantly, you got security is a, a major issue and you've got things that they learn. We're kind of all beta testers at this point. So they're going to be pushing all these updates. Eventually there's going to be an end of life. And what do they do then in 10 years, Tesla's not going to be updating full self-driving on a first generation model three. It's not going to happen. It will be so outdated. They're, they're going to end of life. It just like Apple does after was it eight years that you're seven or eight years that your Mac is considered obsolete and I own multiple of them. They just don't, they do security updates periodically. And I, I think eventually they, at some point they, they just stop. They just stop. They just kind of say you're on your own. So does your car never have heated seats at that point? It's yet to be determined as far as yeah. I'm aware, nobody's tackled the, the topic or are they just going to open it up? Or they just say, okay, your car is 15 years old. Now you get everything, but it all sucks. Because <laughs> uh, it's all old. My my guess is it'll just get to a point where they say, if you have this model, your car, you know, basically whatever update you have is that's it. That's the last one. If if your car just kind of dies, too bad, so sad. You're on your own. Buy the new model. Kind of like Apple or or a lot of other tech companies have done. At a certain point, they they to be blunt, just don't care about you anymore. So do you think though that they say, if you've been paying for the last year for this subscription service to get self-driving, you get to keep it? Or do you think they shut it off? I, I think it depends on, on how resource intensive it becomes for them to continue to, to service and offer that service for the legacy models. At some point when they say, we're spending way too much time and resources to try to you know, the year 2030 to try to keep the, you know, 2013 Model S's on the road. They're like, look, here's, we'll give you a thousand dollar credit to buy a new one. But what you have is what you have. If it bricks, if it dies, oh, well, yeah. You know, I, Another, I, mean, I hate to sound that blunt about it, but I, I just think that's, that's what's going to become. But I mean, on the other hand, I think that could be a boon for the aftermarket because Electric motors don't really wear out. I mean, the only parts that really touch are the gears, the, the rotor and stator of the, of the motor. You're going to have bearings. Go. You're going to have bearings. Well, I mean, I mean bearings, but yeah. it's all yeah. serviceable. It's, yeah. it's all stuff you could replace or, or kind of service. So you could have these Tesla motors that are still perfectly good. Now, the rest of the car, the, the software platform, the electronics, all that could be kind of, essentially toast because it's no longer supported, but the actual motor unit itself could still be perfectly fine. You know, like you said, just replace a couple of the, the bearing cart, the, the bearing cartridges, you know, a few other little serviceable items, boom, you know, 400 bucks or, or rather hopefully 400, probably more than that. If you can do it yourself. 400 horsepower, you know, let's say 2000 bucks, you know, still perfectly good. 
stick it in your 57 Chevy or whatever, a big potential um, opportunity for the aftermarket, assuming they could kind of kind of get through some of the, the roadblocks that you know Tesla might put in their way. But I'm hoping at some point Musk will have a change of heart or the Tesla management will have a change of heart where once these vehicles reach the end of the warranty period, the end of their kind of design life, but some of the components still have some usefulness left in them, they'll, they'll just kind of take off all the nanny software and just let the hobbyists kind of go for it. You know who doesn't have this kind of problem of vehicles aging out? The uh, Jag and Land Rover owners, because they probably all lease. Yeah, but slightly like a lot of luxury brands. But. Yeah, so so the CEO, and I cannot pronounce his name because much like <laughs> most automotive journalists, I I read and write the names. I don't ever say the name. So <laughs> I'm guessing it's Terry Bellore. Could Bellore. be. Bellore could be. Yes. He announced that Land Rover will uh, release six EVs by the middle of this decade. The first one's coming out in 2024. Uh, by 2030, 60% of Land Rover sales will be electric. Now, I was unsure. I'm sure they said it, and I missed it, whether that's sales volume or is that sales models. But 60%, still a good number, <laughs> regardless of what it is. Along those lines, JAG becomes all EV by, was that 2025? Yeah, I think that's what they said. Uh, interestingly, um, so for, for a long time, Jaguar was saying the next generation XJ was going to be fully electric. Now they said they're not going to do the XJ now, or it's been put on an indefinite hold, or it's going to be something else, possibly. Maybe maybe they got the memo that crossover. If I yeah. had to guess, yes. Maybe they got the memo that cars are not what's selling right now, and that the XJ needs to be a crossover, uh, especially early on. I, I could see things, vehicles like the Lucid Air and the Model S. There's there's a market for it, and it's a high end. You're gonna you're not gonna tell somebody who wants to spend one hundred fifty thousand dollars on a car that they have to buy an SUV. If they want a car, they're gonna buy a car. There's there's going to yeah. be that out there. So I could certainly see there being a Jag XJ. Uh, EV, but when you're first coming in, if you want to make money, you got to go where the quantity is. So, so the CEO won't pronounce his name again. Says it's time to reimagine the next chapter for both brands. Basically, they're all in. They're going to dump in 17-ish, 18, 17 to 20 billion dollars between now and 2025 to make all of this happen, which is a little bit less, but somewhat on par with Ford's commitment, which is a little surprising because Ford is. Uh, there's a lot of there are a lot of Fords. There are probably more Fords than there are Jags and Land Rovers out there. And the dollar amount is, you know, what's a few billion between friends? Exactly. Uh, so uh, it, there's a lot of commitment there. I'm happy to see it. And I'll probably never own one. I'll be the person at the junkyard ripping the guts out of a wrecked Model Three and putting it in my Mazda. It, it's interesting though. There's been a lot of silence from legacy manufacturers, and I think the the EV diehards might you know read into that Tesla uh, enthusiasts that they've been looking at this is the, the lack of action from a lot of these legacy automakers as they're dead in the water. And I kind of wonder, well, I don't kind of wonder. I think that they've been biding their time. You don't suddenly go from zero to 
100% of your market is EV in the next four years, unless they're jumping on, they're just paying GM and they're going to put everything on the Ultium platform. You know, I think that they've been, they've had this in their back pocket for a while and everybody's just been a little quieter and they haven't been tweeting crazy things as certain CEOs do and making all their announcements that their next car will be a flying car with jet propulsion and apparently windshield wipers that use lasers. Uh, not to name anyone in particular. <laughs> mm, no, no idea. But, but not speaking of that company whatsoever, Tesla has now <laughs> surpassed Audi as they are now the third, uh, fourth, fourth, largest. fourth largest luxury automaker in America. Um, so it's BMW, Lexus, Mercedes-Benz, and Tesla. Audi is now sitting in last in that group. And they're all marginally, uh, I mean, they're, they're all right around the same. I believe Tesla was only 40, I'm trying to look up the numbers. They were, uh, so the, the report on inside EVs, uh, Audi, was this, in, this is based on vehicle registration for 2020. Audi sold, uh, they registered 100, roughly 183 and a half thousand, Tesla 200,000 and a half, 200 and a half thousand. Mercedes was 265, uh, 265,600. Lexus 271, 300, and BMW two, nearly 290,000. So the number, the span isn't that big. It's not a big delta between Audi and Tesla, Tesla, Mercedes. Between number four and number one. Yeah, yeah. 90,000, and you're there. And so, I got to believe Lexus is going to decrease a little bit. <laughs> so here, here's the thing is, you know, I, I don't want to mix apples and oranges too much, but I don't know if you've seen that, that kind of animated infographic about uh, market valuation of automakers. It starts like, I think back in like 2010, it goes to the present day where in the beginning, Tesla's not even on the list. You know, they, they didn't even really exist as a company till I think 2011, I think. And then for, for years and years and years, they were kind of a nobody. And then they still slowly started creeping up the chart until the last couple of years, they just became this huge bar. And even, you know, Toyota, Volkswagen, General Motors, who used to be these like juggernauts of the industry, are just a fraction of Tesla's valuation. Now, having said that, I know valuation and sales are two different things, but kind of reading between the lines a little bit with this, and not, not to the same extent, but I kind of see the same thing happening in the luxury market between Tesla and the legacy brands, is I think with the introduction of Model Y, and keep in mind, right now the Model Y is only being produced well, it's being produced in two factories right now, Fremont and Shanghai. Soon it will start coming out of uh, Gigafactory Texas as well as Berlin. So soon the Model Y will be produced at four plants and they're expecting it to be by far the volume seller of, of the lineup by orders of magnitude, supposedly. So when that happens, when all four of these plants globally are cranking that out, plus adding in the Cybertruck, plus potentially the Model 2, like we talked about last week. I I could see Tesla just one by one, year by year, just kind of beep, 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 just kind of picking off 
BMW, Mercedes, Lexus, and just kind of topping the charts. Un- so not, again, not a foregone conclusion, but it's a good likelihood. Eventually, though, we'll have to put them in the category that they belong in, which is not luxury. Well, uh, I mean, you can make that case too. The I mean, Model Three, basically, a mass market brand. Yes, the Model Three is not. I the the Model S is a luxury vehicle. The the Model X is a luxury vehicle. The Model Three is a BMW 3 Series at best. Uh, the Model Y is a Ford Mustang Mach E at best. They're not luxury what they are is premium they're expensive premium. yeah they're expensive and eventually once the $25,000 the mythical $25,000 Tesla comes out and the Model Y production kicks up even more they're going to have to start competing against the big boys and yeah. it's, it's one thing to put them as Toyota Ford Chevy yeah, yeah. they're miles off of that what yeah. they sell i don't have the exact number but i bet they're selling half of the number of uh, the number that Toyota sells of Camrys uh, in the entire Tesla lineup. <laughs> the, yeah, that's roughly half of the number of Camrys. So it, give or take. But, it's, yeah. and, and in fairness, I think the Camry is somewhere between a Model 3 and a Model S. But, <laughs> I, I would say maybe the Avalon, but anyway. Well, it, regardless, it, that that caliber of car that I don't, I no longer care about acceleration numbers. I, it does nothing for me. All of these cars, anybody will be able to produce a sub three seconds, zero to 60 EV. You're, you're going to be able to go down to the store and buy the next Ford Fiesta if they made it into an EV. And it would do zero to 60 in three seconds. It's just the reality. And so I don't think you can look at it and say, well, it's supercar performance. Thus, it must be a luxury car eventually they're going to have to put them in the right categories and what it is is it's a good sign of tesla's success when you can say that that it's now going to have to that it it is actually competing with ford and toyota not just these these ultimate the traditional luxury uh vehicles so i I I think think that's kudos for tesla for doing for me i think they're they're on their way to becoming a legitimate mass market brand i mean if you want to make the parallel between Tesla and Apple, which is applicable in a number of ways, I think you could make the argument that the iPhone is kind of a premium quote unquote product, but there's nothing special or, or rare about it. Probably every other phone out there is an iPhone roughly. Literally. Um, (laughs) Well, or literally. So they're not rare. So it's getting to the point. I mean, especially in my neighborhood and you, you noted, suddenly all your neighbors are seeming to get model Ys. you know, in the early days of the, uh, of the model S and the model three, it was like, Ooh, there's another, you know, Ooh, I just saw one, you know, it's like this big treat and, and, and like, it was this big surprise when you saw one in the wild. I mean, I, I see them. I can't go a block from my house without seeing probably about five or six model threes or, or model Ys, And I'm seeing more every day. So to your point, I think it's going to get to the point where Tesla's just a car. It's not it's not like a Bugatti or a Ferrari or anything special. It's like, oh, there's another Tesla. Yeah, I think this is one of the last years where they'll have they'll be comparing them to luxury brands. You'll have to start breaking it out. It won't be Tesla <clears throat> versus Mercedes. It will be the Model S versus the E-Class or whatever uh, you want to pit it against. It, they're going to have yeah. to start breaking it down because do people count the the three series BMW as a, a luxury vehicle? They're nice. 
Uh, they're better than a Civic, but it's not a five series, not a seven series. The, the way traditionally they kind of segment is by brand and you have premium and basically what they call mainstream or mass market brands. Mm. So in that, from that standpoint, Ford is considered a mass market brand, even though Ford has, you know, $70,000 plus models that are very luxurious have, and have a have lot of features. $100,000 trucks. Yeah, well, exactly. Is that whereas, a premium vehicle now? It's, yeah. it, so it, everything's whereas, crossing over. Yeah, Tesla, BMW are considered, quote, premium. But beyond that, it's just, you know, it's just a definitional difference. You know what isn't a premium brand? Please tell us. <laughs> Jeep. Uh, <laughs> Jeep is, is the, um, it's the everyman's car. Uh, if you can afford it, yeah, if you can <laughs> afford now, a $60,000 Wrangler. Yeah. But it's got a market that knows what it's getting. It's getting something that even though they only drive to the store in it to buy groceries, they're getting something with, uh, solid axles that could go off-roading that's got locking diffs and, um, is Rubicon rated and, and they're getting all <laughs> these things. And, uh, so last week we talked briefly, the, the Jeep had, they pre-announced it's Wrangler EV that's coming. We don't know too much about it uh, other than it's coming at the, the Easter Jeep Safari of Moab uh, pretty soon. So I was all, we were excited about it. And, you know, it looked like they're, they're, it looks like they might be mounting the motor in the middle of the vehicle and having some kind of transfer case or something. We, we only know what we see in pictures and what we can dissect and the tea leaves we can read. But there was an article on Jalopnik. Uh, David Tracy was writing that uh, the quote that stood out to me was he said, the electric Jeep Wrangler concept looks like it was designed by a high school shop class. Basically he's saying they've cut and welded parts in and they're using, his contention was even they're going to use a like a, a six-speed or eight-speed transmission because he was drilling in and looking at fins on things. I think he was reading way too much into the pictures yeah. and the diagrams. But for sure, this is not going to have a frunk. Uh, the front trunk. It's not going to have uh, a lot of the, it, it's basically a, a body on frame with a bunch of batteries jammed in there and a, and a motor and, and some kind of transmission, whether it's a single gear uh, reduction mode, uh, reduction uh, gear set or a transfer case, which is probably going to be the case. But he went off and was saying that this is, this was a pathetic attempt. It was kind of his, his, um, his shtick in that article. And I read that yeah. as it's Jeep knowing their market. I think if you handed Jeep buyers, if you said to a traditional Jeep buyer, here's something with a with a battery pack, which may or may not be able to take a hit from a rock while you're off-roading uh, before destroying the battery pack, how popular would that be? What do you think? I, I'm in complete agreement with you. First of all, I think Tracy, I've read a lot of his stuff. You know, I, I, I find a lot of his stuff entertaining and informative. I, I think he's reading a little too much into this. I think whatever kind of infographic or diagram they've released and shown so far is probably very high level conceptual. So get, getting back to kind of, and I read through the article, th there were two approaches Jeep could have taken to this. One was uh, basically a bespoke dedicated EV platform and just kind of put the Wrangler body on top of it with you know in-wheel motors or you know a you know very obviously kind of ev specific platform which possibly would have worked and been very effective the only problem with that is 
if you take that approach, you've completely eliminated 70 plus years of the aftermarket and enthusiast community that you've built up around the brand. So I actually think by Jeep retaining a live axle kind of transfer case type setup is actually a very smart approach because Jeep guys, possibly more than any other enthusiast segment I can think of, love wrenching on their vehicles. They love swapping out ring and pinions, you know, changing ratios, putting in transfer cases, this and that. So if you can give them a platform that will still allow them to tinker and, and upgrade and enhance, but with the advantages of an electric motor, I think at least in the, the short term, that's a smarter approach to take to try to get more people on board with EVs and in the context of a four by four in a Jeep. Yeah, I, so, I, I have absolutely no insight into this. So who knows? But I, I covered how... the, the light truck and SUV market for a long time. So that's my personal take. I think it's good to kind of tiptoe into this by retaining a lot of the traditional features of a Jeep. But, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if they designed a Jeep where a lot of the aftermarket bolt-ons, the, the, the front ends, the, the big steel bumpers with the winches and, and the rear bumpers and um, some of the, the fender kits, that all of that stuff already existed for the EV because they, stepped, they stayed basically within their box. Yeah, and, and I and, think that's probably maybe what happens. So. And it would ease the transition. I think it's very smart. And what else I think is very smart right now is that we're at about an hour. Wow. Do well, we... so, so much uh, for uh, staying in our uh, 30 minutes, huh? Yeah. You know, one hour is a nice little box. I like the, I like the one hour box. It seems to work. Yeah, it works for me. Uh, rather than covering every news item, we picked out a couple. Uh, still, still, still talk for way too long. longer than we thought. But... Yeah. And yeah. so uh, if you got any questions or comments or anything on the podcast, what's the uh, email? Email, email us at hello at the You can also check out the walk car at the and see my Don't forget about our Facebook page. Uh, yeah. Like our Facebook page. We're on Apple podcasts and Google is ignoring me right now. So I eventually will be on every podcast. Um, service oh, don't build, don't bad mouth them too much because we want to get on there too. So. Yes, so I eventually you'll be able to find us everywhere. But uh, if you go on thewalkcar.com right now, that that will find us. And hello at thewalkcar.com will find uh, me or Ed directly. And from there, we're wrapping up episode two, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, well, might be a little shorter next time, but uh, we're, we're trying. This we're, is. Uh, We'll knock it down bit by bit and <laughs> see where we end up. And maybe this is an hour long podcast or what? I just can't imagine us talking for 30 minutes about this. It's just not going to be enough time. Yeah, but whatever. Probably we'll see. So, well, until I'll, next time. Yeah, I'll talk to you next week. All right.